Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me from the studios at WUGA in Athens, Georgia, is Professor Jim Cobb of the University of Georgia's History Department, one of the country's best known not only Southern historians, but particularly his interest in economic issues affecting the American South. And today we're going to talk about a topic that's in the news. Most people don't really understand it, and that is tariffs. Jim, I loved a comment you made in your blog about Ferris Bueller's day off and the high school teacher. You want to relate that for our our listeners? Yeah, that's an iconic scene. I'm sure uh, people who know that movie remember it, of where uh, uh, Ray Walston is the economics teacher. And uh, uh, he's trying to get uh, people to... Uh, no, I'm sorry, it's not Ray Walston. It's uh, Ben Stein. Yeah, Ben Stein. Uh, he's trying to get people to respond to him. They're talking about tariffs, and he mentions the the Hawley Smoot tariff uh, of, of 1930, which was actually a very significant tariff, but he's, you know, he's... He's, uh, you know, he can't get anybody, uh, the Holly Smoot tariff, anyone, anyone. In 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, in an effort to alleviate the effects of the, anyone, anyone, the Great Depression, passed the, anyone, anyone, a tariff bill, the Holly Smoot Tariff Act, which anyone raised or lowered raised tariffs in an effort to collect more revenue for the federal government. Did it work? Anyone? Anyone know the effects? It did not work, and the United States sank you know, deeper its into effects the Great were Depression. Anyone? Anyone? And uh, so that, that sort of, to me, epitomizes my experiences in, uh, over many years in trying to teach about the tariff and uh, and uh, try to engage uh, uh, people's attention. So, uh, so let's hope we can do a little bit better than that. Well, wh- what was that awful book when we were in graduate school on the Tausig, who wrote on the tariffs? It was- yeah, that was a, it was deadly. I remember the author. I uh, can't remember the title, but uh, well, there were a lot of deadly books on the tariff. I think folks out there might not realize that once we got a constitution and we're really functioning as an American nation, one of the first things Congress did was pass a tariff. The tariff in 1789 was really customs duties to help fund the government. But after the War of 1812, era of good feelings, there's a lot of nationalism out there. Our industrial base, such as it is, it's on textiles, and it's just beginning to get going certainly in New England, and actually a few struggling mills in the Carolinas. So Congress decides we need to do something to help our local folks. And I'll throw that to you about how it came about. Well, yeah, I mean, the idea, you know, protective tariff uh, um, by adding an extra tax on imported goods uh, is uh, supposed to protect domestic producers from having to compete with foreign goods. And, and of course, the American manufacturing was in its uh, embryonic phase at that point. And after the War of 1812, especially, it was, it was clear enough that we were going to you know, be independent uh, from Great Britain. And, but we're, that meant we also were going to be in uh, economic partnerships as well as competition. So the idea of a tariff, you know, the, particularly in those days, I mean, in the first... Uh, Say from from the 1789 8% tariff up until the you know well into the 20th century, the tariff was a major source of revenue, even as uh, it was serving an increasing increasingly protectionist purpose because the rates were going up. But uh, at that point, the idea was to sort of provide protection for. Uh, American manufacturing to sort of get on its feet. And so from the 8% duties in uh, 1789, you're getting up in the range of, by 1820, about 25% duties. So, you know, that's affording more protection, more things are covered, and the and the, uh, the, the cost of importing uh, certain manufacturing goods was raised. I mentioned textiles earlier, but that 
wasn't the only industry that was protected in 1816. Pittsburgh was just beginning to become a manufacturing center for iron. They wanted protection from Swedish and English iron. In Kentucky, they made hemp into bagging used in cotton bales. They wanted to be protected. And the shepherds of Vermont and Ohio wanted protection from the import of English wool. So everybody seemed to want to be an infant industry that was protected. And one of the fascinating things is money bills start in the House of Representatives. Rollins Lowndes and John C. Calhoun of South Carolina were the point men on the tariff of 1816. And that is a certain amount of rich historical irony there. Oh, ab- absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, well, well Calhoun, you know, he, he had a you know, he had a nationalist vision. I don't think he ever really completely lost it, although uh, my talking about South Carolina history uh, to you is about like trying to explain the New Testament to Jesus. I, but he does go through a, a, you know, kind of a phase where, you know, he understands the importance and he sees it uh, uh, as uh, protecting industries and, and various kinds of manufacturers as being uh, vitally important to the, the health and future prosperity of the whole country. So um, he, you know, he is, he is unfortunately uh, perhaps uh, forced to sort of change his perspective a bit as other developments kind of envelop uh, the tariff issue. Well, and Calhoun thought that South Carolina would become a textile state. It would 100 years later. But that was kind of one of the ways he went along with, including the nationalism. But he was hoping that the few mills that were in the Carolinas and were struggling very much against competition from importation of English textiles would be fine. Now, 25 percent tariff, what does that do for the consumer? We know what it does for the manufacturer, but what does it do for the consumer? Well, you know, most people miss the the, the fact that, uh, strictly speaking, the, the effect of the tariff is to add the, the, the tariff duty onto the, the original cost of the imported goods, so, you know, theoretically raising it by 25 percent. But but people forget also that, that once that tariff ceiling is established and there's a protective margin there for domestic uh, producers so that... They can actually raise, uh, you know, as long as they don't raise their prices to the point where uh, the, the importance of the of the tariff is, uh, dare I say, nullified um, by the by their own price increase. In other words, it's a ceiling for for uh, incremental costs, uh, uh, price increases for domestic producers as well. So, typically, when you see uh, a tariff rate revised upward, uh, you see not only the rise in the cost of the imported good, but a, a, then trailing that is a rise in the price of the domestic good. It seems to me back when I had my American history classes as a student, John Randolph of Roanoke was wearing imported boots, and he thought it was terrible that he would have to pay more boots. He thought if I wanted to buy, he said, if I want to buy English boots, I should be able to. Why should I have to buy something made in Connecticut? Well, you know, that was a problem all along as the sectional crisis sharpened, uh, you know, and the, and the Southern nationalists were, were saying, you know, we've got to, we need to buy Southern. You know, we need to educate our own children. We don't need to be sending them off uh, to the North to, to school. I mean, the problem was um, making people's Satisfied with uh, what they could get domestically, you know, and that was very much in keeping. You know, Randolph's point was was very much in keeping with the whole idea of uh, individual freedom uh, or individual prerogatives. So, it 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 sort of shows uh, the difficulty at uh, once people start really honing in on what tariffs really mean. Uh, in terms of, of of prices and spending options, then it becomes a little pricklier to to just sell the kind of general principle of it's a good thing to protect our own industries. As you had mentioned earlier, 
Calhoun, Rollins Lowndes, others, South Carolinians, were part of this era of good feelings, burst of national feelings, nationalism after the, the War of 1812. And Congress kept raising the rates, 25% by 1820. But then you get three specific tariffs that come in the 1820s and 18, 1824, 1828, 1832, and the tariffs become a hot-button political issue. And Calhoun and other former nationalists turn on the tariffs, and in 1832, with the tariff of abominations, they threaten uh, to break up the Union. Yeah, and and you know, I mean, Calhoun here is uh, there's a whole procession of uh, Southern politicians who are are forced to kind of tightrope here because I mean, he clearly has national political ambitions. Well, I mean, you know, he became vice president, and uh, you know, was I'm sure uh, eyeing the presidency as well. So, having to sort of uh, suddenly sort of divide your loyalties and and uh, Admit that as these as the rates go up, it's also becoming increasingly apparent that the people they benefit or the enterprises they benefit more and more are are concentrated outside as opposed to inside the South, and and so uh, Calhoun is forced to sort of tightrope here, and by by 1820, uh, you know, you've got the the Missouri Compromise where you get the first big kind of crisis over the slave state, free state uh, ratio uh, within the Union. And uh, so that extra component of uh, a source of sectional tension is, uh, is also arising. So it seems to me that the arguing over the tariff sort of gives you an idea of, of what the lineup is going to look like and, and the lines that will Emerge also on the uh, uh, you know issue of slavery and slavery expansion. I don't know about you, but I remember very well my first uh, Civil War history class in college. The uh, the professor got up and uh, you know I think the first thing he said was, "You probably think Civil War is about slavery, don't you?" But you know, really, the tariff was a lot more important, and and of course that was part of that was a sort of ex post facto attempt to sort of diminish the uh, the importance of uh, of slavery as the the root cause of the civil war but you know it the tariff certainly did keep uh, you know sectional feelings raw particularly during that period the you know there's really not that much evidence that by the time you get to 1860 61 that the you know people are uh, harping on the tariff as uh, as a real sense of grievance on the part of uh, Southerners, uh, nearly so much as slavery. But uh, but it is you know it is there, uh, and it's a, a matter of contention going forward. All right, Jim. We need to pause for a moment. Let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Professor Jim Cobb of the University of Georgia. We're talking about tariffs in American history, and politics. One of the things behind Calhoun's change, besides looking at the tariffs as unfair, is South Carolina is going through some economic difficulties, some hard times. She's no longer the leading cotton state. She's losing population. And as a state that depends upon exports, and then having to import the products that she needs, tools, what have you. South Carolinians feel the unjustness of tariffs. They got to pay more for anything that's manufactured because it's not being manufactured at home. And after 1824, the tariffs go up to 50%, which is unbelievable. Then it increases in 1828. And we get to the tariff of abominations, which is what Calhoun referred to, 1832, uh, raised the rates even higher. So anything South Carolinians wanted to purchase, whether it came from abroad or came from New York or Connecticut, they were paying higher prices because of the tariffs. And 
sometimes European countries retaliated against the United States by putting tariffs on cotton. Cotton wasn't just grown in the United States. They were already growing it in India. So when you hit somebody in the pocketbook, it hurts. Well, yeah, and, you know, in, in South Carolina, the state in the South most aggrieved uh, under the, the emerging higher tariff framework, but it's kind of might, might be good just to recall that the agricultural sector, were, uh, you know, they they're basically are selling for export in a market that is, is not only not protected, but it's actually, if anything, depressed by either the fact that, that nations who can't sell as many of their exports to us because of the tariff don't have the goods to buy our goods, or they deliberately establish their own retaliatory uh, tariff barriers, which we're getting a you know, a, a primer in right now. So, so farmers are basically, there's a very, very high percentage of the, of the supplies and uh, materials that farmers need that uh, they have to buy in a, in a tariff-protected economy, meaning that, that the, you know, the import prices are higher and the domestic prices are also higher. And then they have to sell in an international market where they're also operating at a disadvantage induced by the tariff. So by 1820, I mean, southern cotton and tobacco accounts for 65% of the value of all American exports. And yet the regions that produce this two-thirds of the uh, exports is also the region that is uh, suffering most from the tariff. Jim, how much do you think southern exceptionalism plays into this issue, you know, well, it's just the South. Was that really happening now, or is, or is that coming later? Because Southerners still have a lot of political clout in the 1820s. Yeah, yeah, they, they do. And and in fact, you know, you could argue. I, I, I wouldn't. I'm not an expert on antebellum politics, but you know, you could argue that that they're, you know, they they maintained a. If, if not even increase their clout for a, a surprising span of time thereafter, and the Demo- you know the Democratic Party realizes, of course, uh, you know, Southern grievances, particularly about the tariff, and and uh, and it sort of takes on the uh, you know reducing tariffs as uh, part of its agenda. So I don't think it's. Um, I mean, we're not looking at that, you know, two or three things go the other way and we're going to have, a, you know, a civil war in 1832. You're, you're seeing sort of the fault lines emerge, but the system is, is, is still working pretty well for, for the South uh, overall in Congress. And, and, you know, when you get, you know, you look at, at who's dominating the Supreme Court, you look at the prominence of Southerners in uh, in Congress, so you get—I mean, by you know, by the 1850s, they've they reduced tariff rates down to 17 or 18 percent. Which, of course, you know, when the the Panic of 1857 comes along, the northern uh, states uh, uh, blame a lot of that on the on the reduced tariff, which had had reduced the protection for places like Pennsylvania with, you know, with their manufacturing. So, you know, I think that the, the tariff is, is part of the fabric. It's not, it's not something that quite, you know, defines the South as a separate entity and anything like by the middle of the 19th century slavery does. But it's a more subtle element in, you know, it's, it's a, there's a recognition behind everything that's going on that the, you know that, that there is this difference on the uh, on the tariff. Although the Democratic Party, particularly beginning with Jackson, does begin to reduce tariffs, they don't start to reduce tariffs until the nullification crisis, and the nullification crisis is based around the tariffs, right? Absolutely, yeah. The nullification crisis it scared scared people on both sides, you know. That's another thing that, you know, as you point out, early on, South Carolina's uh, economy is, is a bit more diversified as far as, as you know, there's seeming to be some prospect for a viable textile industry. And then within South Carolina, of course, the, the whole nullification crisis 
creates divisions that affect state politics. And this is something that, you know, that the, the tariff has done throughout history is created uh, debates over tariffs have, uh, have not only aligned states into in particular interest groups, but, but they've also uh, sharpened the differences between interest groups within states as well. So the tariff thing was, was certainly like, a, you know, it, it, it wasn't exactly, uh, you know, Jefferson was talking about slavery and he was talking about a fire bell in the night, but the nullification crisis was certainly a warning sign. Uh, and again, too, you know, we forget, because we're always projecting our values backward, we forget that the nation was only <laughs> it was still a very young nation at that point and and the whole idea the concept of uh, i think kenneth stamp called it the concept of perpetual union had not had not taken hold uh you know nearly as much in the 1830s even as as it would by you know the end of the 1850s so so the whole enterprise was a lot shakier in some people's minds than, than we might imagine, and uh, and the tariff was one of the things that w- was out there as a as a potential destabilizing force. Well, the tariff of 1832, which set the highest rates ever, really just touched off a political firestorm in South Carolina. In fact. Calhoun didn't lead it. He 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 finally had to jump to the head of the movement. It started it started without him in terms of protest within within the state, and the General Assembly of South Carolina called for the election of a special convention to consider the matter of the tariffs, and they met in November 1832, and there they passed the ordinance of nullification that South Carolina declared that the tariff was unauthorized by the Constitution, parentheses, even though John C. Calhoun and Rollins Lowndes had crafted the tariff of 1816. Therefore, the tariff was null, void, and of no law, nor binding upon this state its officers or its citizens. And it said, that after February the 1st, 1833, South Carolina would prevent federal officials in Charleston from collecting the tariffs. And if the federal government made any untoward moves, South Carolina would secede. Well, they thought the man in the White House, who was a native son of South Carolina, Andrew Jackson, would agree with their idea. But on December the 10th, he came down with a proclamation to the people of South Carolina, and he basically said, you can't do this. He said, I consider the power to annul a law of the United States assumed by one state incompatible with the existence of the Union. And... He said, if South Carolina goes forward, he personally will consider leading the army into South Carolina to enforce the federal laws. Now, this wasn't the day of 24-7 news cycle, but it was a political firestorm. Absolutely. And and Calhoun was basically sort of a jump to finally had to sort of jump out in front of it to but part of the of the reason he needed to was to was to prevent it from actually you know becoming a full blown uh, secession crisis because there were people in the nullifier crowd who who were really that was their that was their aim they were ready right then to take South Carolina out of the union and of course, Calhoun had you know been vice president, and he you know he was he and Jackson were not on great terms for a lot of personal reasons apart from the the tariff issue. You know, and I suspect there was a certain misreading in South Carolina, as you mentioned, that of what Jackson's attitude would be. So it was a it was again a much more complicated factor, and. Uh, you know, the a lot of the rhetoric, if you read the nullifier rhetoric, there's less about anything close to the nuts and bolts of a 
of the tariff of the tariff rates or or the implications uh, as much as it becomes a matter of state pride, you know, regional pride. So it was it was certainly possible at that point to to whip up sectional sentiment um, using the tariff as a premise. But the existence of the issue and and the way it was handled, I mean, it, there's an old saying when I was a kid about two guys who were arguing and threatening to fight, and it turned out uh, one of them was scared and the other one was glad of it. Um, they, uh, I think, it, you know, you sort of see that with with uh, with Jackson and uh, and uh, you know the South Carolinians. I mean, they uh, neither was sure exactly how far the other would go. So certainly on the part of Calhoun, on the South Carolina side, and, and on, on the part of Jackson, too, there was a big sigh of relief when ultimately South Carolina kind of backs off. And uh, the matter, at least as far as coming to a, a head uh, uh, over secession, is, uh, is at least uh, the cans kicked on farther down the road. All right, Jim, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Professor Jim Cobb of the University of Georgia, and we're talking about tariffs in American history and politics. Jim, before we leave the nullification crisis, within South Carolina, there was not unanimity in support of nullification. In fact, there was a strong unionist sentiment in the upstate of South Carolina. But the way nullification had an impact on everything, you see advertisements for ladies, get your new nullification hairdo, nullification braids, nullification tresses. It was like taking French fries out of the congressional dining room. I mean, it, 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 it became part of the, the warp and woof of certainly a majority of South Carolinians, but not all. Within about three weeks after Jackson issued his proclamation, the House Committee on Ways and Means uh, proposed to lower duties. They hadn't passed them yet. They're talking about lowering them. And so South Carolina says, okay, well, we're not going to go to the brink. In fact, we'll suspend the nullification ordinance until the new tariff bill comes out. We're going to see what it says. So the threat of bloodshed right then is put on hold. And when Congress does pass a new tariff, which reduces it from what it had been gradually till it gets down to 20%, which takes it back almost to 1816, um, but Jackson insists upon something else. He still sends a message to South Carolina, right? Right. Yeah, with the force bill, um, you know, which he had insisted on passing, that that sort of you know, legis- created legislative uh, basis for his using force to prevent the uh, nullification by any state of a federal law. So he asserted his right as uh, as president to take what measures uh, he thought necessary to maintain the, the, the primacy of the, of the central government. Well, the foresight gave him the power to use the Army and the Navy to collect custom duties. So if South Carolina had gone forward, the Navy would have sailed into Charleston Harbor and they'd have been collecting the duties. I mean, it, it was interesting. The two acts went together, the force bill and the reduction of the tariffs. As with many compromises, sometimes people do walk away. We won. Yeah. South Carolina said, we won because the tariffs are going to go mm-hmm. down. And Jackson said, we have reinforced the power of the union, of the federal government. Well, of course, that, that's, you know, that's, that's what you want is uh, uh, really if, if you have much hope for the compromises that, that both both sides I mean you know they say well a good compromise is when nobody's satisfied but politically speaking a good compromise is when people can at least claim to be satisfied or, or claim that they got the upper hand they just didn't get all they wanted and and you know Jackson was a genius at, at shows of bravado you know and, and it, he did it so seamlessly because he had a volatile personality anyway but he you know, he uh, he knew, you know, when a show of muscle and temper, uh, anger could uh, 
could be beneficial uh, politically. So uh, in that case, I think he probably read the situation uh, pretty well. So, I mean, if he had walked meekly away from the whole the whole business, then uh, it's not hard to imagine another state turning up two or three years later to, to nullify something else. The tariffs are going down, but South Carolina, interesting situation economically. By 1838, East Indian rice from Java primarily could be bought more cheaply in Charleston than rice produced within walking distance of the port city. And so in 1846, the South Carolina delegation gets Congress to pass a tariff on imported rice to protect the rice industry of South Carolina. Now, that's not widely known, but it's just if your ox is getting gored, you can shift horses. And I just yeah. sure mix my metaphors, but <laughs> <laughs> well, but well, yeah, you know, and and of course it took a while to get that done, but and and there were, you know, there were um, all along with with later tariffs, which are, you know, when the tariffs go back up. I mean, there there are cases, uh, you know, where where there there is some protection afforded for discrete. Elements of the agricultural economy, and of course, I mean, you know, that was uh, the in the, with the case of the rice, that was quite a compelling case for South Carolina. So, you know, there's not there's not consistency. I mean, you know, later on, Southerners are going to jump back to you know, uh, well, we don't want tariffs on this other stuff, but yeah, textiles, we got to protect our textiles again. So it's a case of shifting interests and shifting political circumstances that helped to determine where there was not, you know, you, you couldn't just draw, a, you know, an absolute rigid line against the tariff now and forevermore. I mean, the uh, economic conditions changed. And and with that, the, the way people read what tariffs meant changed, too. It's interesting. The tariffs in the 1820s and 1830s generated a political crisis. And the tariffs after the Civil War ended up generating a political crisis in the 1880s and 1890s, including a third party movement. And this was, again, agriculture as an export was involved, wheat. Well, the Southerners, uh, in, the, you know, in the movements, the, the farmers' movements, the Farmers' Alliance and then the, the Populist Party, I mean, the high tariffs had been a big element on their their list of grievances but but what's going on again is there's still yeah yeah an, an ideal protective tariff if you just want to pick one item and say we're going to protect production of this in in this country you would want uh, a tariff on it so high that it would be almost prohibitive to pay it but in a period of of domestic expansion in the United States in the in the late 19th century there was still enough demand that uh, people were paying the tariff and purchasing imports to to the extent that the tariff is is providing uh, the major source of revenue. I think I think I read somewhere that the tariff was a major source of revenue in the United States uh, federal revenue uh, all the way from 1790 to 1914. But what's happening in the late 19th century, of course, is that. The South is, particularly, is at a disadvantage because it's been out of the Union when a lot of things were revamped, including the national banking system and, uh, you know, a new st- uh, tariff structure set in place. Uh, both the Republicans and the Democrats, the Republicans were really committed to the higher tariff. But up until 1896, there was still a strong, you know, pro-business, pro-industry wing of the uh, of the Democratic Party. So... They weren't, you know, really so eager to jump in there and just completely scrap either. So it was it was really hard. There would be promises of tariff reform, but uh, you know, uh, it was it was easy to get the promise, but very difficult to get the promise realized. And and one of the things that really uh, champed Southerners so much was that that all this uh, revenue being generated by the tariff was being 
dispensed out in in the, an exceedingly corrupt process of granting pensions to uh, uh, supposedly to former Union soldiers, although I suspect a lot of the pensioners uh, never never saw a day in uniform. So they were they were basically taking money that uh, you know, if, uh, looking at it from the Southern farmer's perspective, uh, that was was coming out of his pocket because he was having to pay higher prices for the for his implements and everything, and then facing you know a a tariff depressed uh, export market. Uh, you know they were taking money out of the farmer's pocket to redistribute in the North. And so that added an extra kind of irritation factor uh, to go with the economic pain that was being inflicted. There were a series of tariffs in the in the 1890s, and one of the items that was front and center was sugar, trying to protect domestic producers, primarily in Louisiana and, and Florida, although that's because we think of sugar cane but we forget about the sugar beet farmers in places like Colorado. And those sugar producers eventually helped maneuver things for the annexation of Hawaii. I mean, oh, yeah. It, you know, the ramifications for, for our foreign policy here and, and uh, you know, and, and who's, who's benefiting, you know, the, I mean, you, you basically have got the, you know, the... Hawaiian sugar producers who by the, the 1890s are dominated by American interests you know they're 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 basically agitating to get rid of the monarchy in Hawaii and and have Hawaii declared a US uh, protectorate or territory because uh, the special arrangement there was kind of like a special treaty agreement with with uh, Hawaii about the purchase of sugar coming from Hawaii into the United States so it becomes then the uh, you know in the interest the sugar interest in uh, in Hawaii to 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 see the U.S. come in and sort of take over, which eventually, you know, happens, and then down in Cuba, owing to to uh, other tariff policies, Cuba sort of loses its own kind of most favored nation status as far as uh, uh, trading in sugar, and that it provides the background for the Cuban uh, uprising that that sets the stage for the Spanish-American War. So the lobbying of domestic interests on tariffs sometimes had unanticipated and, and quite profound impact on the global scene. And, of course, this is increasingly true because, I mean, you know, the American economy is, even then, we, nobody probably noticed it uh, uh, very much, but the American economy was, was much more globalized and, and the economic connections were getting much more complicated even in the late 19th century. And, of course, this would just uh, continue to develop. Uh, as, as we go forward. All right, Jim, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Professor Jim Cobb of the University of Georgia, and we're talking about tariffs in American history and politics. You had mentioned that the tariffs were a major source of federal revenue till the early 20th century, and actually under President Woodrow Wilson, the tariffs were reduced but also under Wilson, an income tax was levied, and that became the major source of income for the federal government. Strangely enough, they tried to uh, institute an income tax in the Wilson-Gorman tariff of 1894, and the Supreme Court struck it down as, a, as an unconstitutional direct levy not based on the Portionment of the population of the states, and of course the court was very conservative, and the you know the pro-business element certainly didn't want an income tax anyway. But the Sixteenth Amendment in 1913 enabled uh, an income tax, and it was part of then of the Underwood Tariff Bill, which also lowered rates uh, uh, from 40 percent to about 25 percent. And 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 of course it was sort of anticipated that you know with the lowering of tariff rates that that you know, another source of revenue would be needed, so the, the income tax was supposed to do that. So the uh, you, know, you get the tariff reduction reform there, and it sort of survives until uh, coming out of World War One, when the Republicans return to power and go back to uh, 
boosting tariffs in in a way that proves uh, disastrous uh, economically uh, uh, in in Europe at yep. first, yep. Uh, and then ultimately back in the United States. We're talking about. 1922, what was that? The, right. f- the Ford yeah, name. Ford, Ford and McCumber in, in 1922, and then the Hawley Smoot in 1930. Um, um, it was supposed to help boost a post war economic boom. I mean, there was a downturn in the South. We all know what happened to, to cotton prices after, right. after yeah. World War I. But everybody thought in government that was the idea was. We'll get that protective tariff, but there were a lot of duties on agricultural products which cost American farmers European markets. Yeah, and and also raise the price of again raise the price of of stuff they're still buying, you know, uh, in a protected market. It begins, of course, with the Ford and McCumber tariff, but uh, increasing the, the cost of implements, uh, harness, I mean, you know, any number of things that farmers relied on. And then, you know, and and both tariffs reduced the buying power as well as raised the retaliatory barriers uh, overseas. But uh, the Hawley Smoot in particular, you know, in a time of depression, it also raised food prices. And, uh, you know, know, there was no poorer segment in the economy than the than the farm sector and so they're they, you know they wind up paying more for for uh, for food and uh, Europe is so depressed then that you know the market was already uh, economically depressed without the retaliation factor coming from uh, European countries responding to American tariffs and of course the you know this sets the stage in Germany for the emergence of the National Socialist Party. And we know who uh, rode that uh, wave into power. So what you see going forward, I think, is, is one of the remarkable things you see is just the, you know, the increasing connections between tariff policies in terms of what they do domestically and you know, what interests they serve and, and uh, you know, what their purpose is. And then the ripple effect abroad is uh, equally uh, profound, and that's what I think should make us more aware you know, today that you know you're, you're dealing with very very delicate little connections here that that you know you can't really anticipate fully what's going to happen when you suddenly jack up duties on any particular you know major economic trade item. Well. This is more your area than than mine, but I was going back to the 1920s and the decline in American, the value of American exports was precipitous as after America put tariffs on, nobody, Europeans raised their tariffs and American exports dropped almost 70% in a three-year period. Yeah. Well, see, and that, of course, we've got an overheated economy here at home, and, you know, we're producing beyond what we, you know, the wages hadn't kept pace with uh, with, with productivity, and uh, you, know, you have uh, strong pro-business administrations in the Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover who worked to hold wages down, and uh, so Americans are sort of, you know, they can't, they can't. We're producing more than we can consume domestically, and that and that's why you start seeing you know the introduction of buying on the installment plan, and the the economy is riding on an increasing amount of consumer debt, so something had to give sooner or later. And, uh, and a lot of people think in in terms of the of the 1920s, well, it was the agricultural sector that got depressed because overproducing cotton, overproducing wheat, what have you. Forget about in South Carolina and in Georgia and North Carolina, by now textiles are a major industry. And they are continuing to produce almost at World War I rates when they, you know, work three shifts. Um, they begin to stretch out. They try to really, right. you know, you're talking about they can't sell what they're producing, but they're still producing. Yeah, and the and, you know, and the whole management structure in the mills had you know had been set up the the uh, you know so this the uh, 
you know, there'd been the, the, the labor violence in the late 20s and early 30s. And, and uh, so they, instead of wage cuts, they, uh, uh, they opted to, to limit, you know, production hours and, uh, um, you know, go to part-time work and, uh, you know, the, uh, as well as the, the stretch-out system. So you get all of these, uh, you know, these, these, these factors that, uh, that really do bear down, uh, uh, you know, very hard on, uh, on the folks working in the, in the, the textile industry. There's absolutely, uh, absolutely no doubt about it. Well, Jim, Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign, but I, I just kind of want to review their tariffs, and we've looked at them from 1789 up through the Depression. Tariffs are enacted, and sometimes there are, the linkages are, are the consequences uh, aren't taken into effect. Industries are connected, markets, even in the 19th, early 19th century. You can't operate in a vacuum. No. Uh, and it was, you know, it, it's just that, you know, we have the, of course, we have the benefit of hindsight going for us in the sense of, of realizing all these things that were interconnected, uh, which, which, which they didn't have. Although, there, you know, there were people who, who were certainly, you know, by, by the 1930s particularly, you know, there, there were people who understood, uh, beginning to understand all this. And so, you know, that, at that point, that, that's, I think it's not coincidental that you start to see this shift toward giving the executive uh, branch more, you know, flexibility in terms of, of dealing with and dealing more selectively with with a with an economic trade problem as opposed to you know just a blanket piece of legislation that covers imports coming from everywhere you know and you, you see more reciprocal trade agreements and and what have you where where you know it's, uh, I think one of the selling points is it's sort of easier to comprehend and contain the uh, um, you know, contain the uh, uh, effects of of a change in uh, in trade policy, but it's very interesting to to me th- these things work in so many un- uh, unanticipated ways. And in a and in a, a case, I think it's that's very relevant for South Carolina. You know, some I mean, the, there have been times, of course, when when uh, uh, not all tariffs always produce disastrous consequences uh, if if they were wisely applied. In President Nixon, 1971, when he he uh, he, t- he simultaneously takes steps to uh, to devalue the dollar uh, uh, because we have this very unfavorable balance of trade, but he also uh, you know imposes a 10 percent surcharge on. Uh, on uh, imported goods, and and that kind of opened the floodgates for for South Carolina in particular, who who jumped to the fore to begin the recruitment of foreign industrial uh, uh, investment, and and of course we we know how that has uh, turned out. So it's you uh, it, know it's it, a lot of it has to do with sort of the and and Nixon of course is able to do that because of the prerogatives that have been uh, you know accorded the. Uh, Accorded the president, so uh, uh, it it does uh, uh, depend on the you know the amount of wisdom and the amount of thought and the amount of planning that goes into making a trade policy shift. Well, I hope that in discussing tariffs, we've been able to get across to to our listeners that it is a complicated issue, and there are frequently unintended consequences. But in the 18th and 19th century and into the 20th century, it was Congress that made those decisions. And as you pointed out, beginning in the 20s and 30s, that decision-making power was transferred to the executive. And that's where it is today. All right, Professor Jim Cobb of the University of Georgia, thanks for being with us today on The Journal.
This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. It's always a pleasure to have Jim Cobb in a conversation. His wide-ranging knowledge about the American South, about economics, it's just fantastic. He makes it come alive. And believe me, folks, when we first began talking about booking this program, Jim and I said, tariffs? And he said, this is going to be fun. Look at how tariffs have affected American history. And by golly, he's right. Tariffs have been an integral part, not just of American history, but have had an impact on South Carolina and her history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.